welcome to the Sound and Marketing Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Roger Kibbe of Viv Labs and evangelist for Samsung Bixby. Welcome to the show, Roger. Well, thanks, Gina. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Just to start off, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Bixby and how Viv Labs became the brain behind Bixby? Yeah, sure. Um, so to explain Bixby, I have to talk about Siri, actually. So um, Adam Shire and Dag Kitlaw were two of the co-founders of Siri. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Siri was an independent company, and they actually launched it on the App Store. Uh, and not too long afterwards, they got this infamous call from Steve Jobs and Apple purchased Siri and then built it into iOS, uh, something we're all familiar with. So Adam and Dag uh, worked for Apple for a couple years, but they started getting, you know, I'd say the entrepreneurial itch. And we're a little frustrated that, you know, that Apple wasn't pushing voice as fast as they'd like it to happen. So they left Apple and they founded Viv Labs with the whole idea being it being a bit of a second generation uh, take on voice assistance. You know, they took the lessons they learned from building Siri and then built a second generation uh, voice assistant platform. And then um, Samsung bought Viv about three years ago. And the whole idea from a Samsung perspective is Samsung is this massive hardware manufacturer and they wanted an embedded voice assistant in their products to make their products easier to use and more enjoyable, which then of course makes you buy more Samsung products and you get that kind of virtuous cycle there. So uh, it's worth mentioning that Samsung had a product called Bixby before Viv Labs, Bixby One, kind of internally built, um, wasn't well received and sometimes the negative sentiment you hear about Bixby is related to that original product. But the new Bixby or Bixby Two uh, is all built upon the Viv Labs technology, uh, which, as I said, uh, the story of that goes way back to the founders of Siri and their experience in voice. How would you say Viv Labs is different from Siri? All right. Well, I have to be fair to Apple because I don't have, uh, you know, in-depth knowledge of what Apple's been doing with Siri more recently. I think they've been advancing the platform and doing some amazing things. But I do definitely see some big differences between the two platforms. Siri is fundamentally more of a closed platform. It's not really designed for third-party development. It's designed for a company, originally Siri and now Apple, to build these voice experiences, uh, but do it with internal developer resources. Yes, you can voice enable a limited set of iOS apps uh, with Siri, but it's pretty limited in what you can do. Um, Viv is a really different take because really the platform is really a developer platform. It's built develop with developer first thinking. You know, um, Adam Chire, he likes to say it all. I might butcher this quote a little bit, but he likes to say, we're not building the world's best voice assistant. We are enabling the world to build the best voice assistant. And that's really pretty philosophically uh, a difference. That really says, hey, we're building this platform upon which third-party developers are going to build the really amazing experiences. And I think that's a pretty fundamental difference 
with Siri, and frankly, in some cases, a fundamental difference with some of the other voice assistant platforms there. The other thing I would say is that uh, um, our platform uses AI not just for voice assistant usage, uh, but it also uses AI uh, to help the developer. So there's some things where the AI actually writes some code for a developer, which makes it pretty unique. Um, so fundamentally, Siri, more of you internally build out the capabilities for it, Viv, more of a third party uh, voice platform. Uh, with my caveats again, that I think Apple is opening some things up with Siri and I wish them all the luck in the world because right now, every advance in voice assistance is good for everyone. I, I tend to agree. I believe that the, further, the furtherment of a voice company should be the furtherment I don't even know if that's a word, but the furtherment of the voice industry as a whole. I think that if we work together, we're going to understand all of this technology and how it all fits into place better and faster if we share our information, if we share our work. Um, and this is just personally what what would you – why would you say that Siri – because I do believe that they are doing more now, but why did they – kind of drag their feet when other industries really push forward with voice, um, not just for like inclusion for developers and everything, but they really, they really, they took a stand. And I feel like Siri had this opportunity because Apple is so good with like sounds and sonic branding in that respect. Why do you think it took them longer to get to the point where I feel a lot of other companies are? You know, I think philosophically, it appears to me that they saw it as another kind of input mechanism. I can swipe, type, and I can talk, right? But almost, uh, I'll call it a keyboard replacement in, 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 <laughs> in voice quotes, so to speak, there. And that was their, that's the feeling about how I even, when I interact with Siri today, it feels more like that versus saying, hey, this is an entirely new way to interact with technology. And we're gonna build our platform based on that. So I certainly think Viv Labs did that. I mean, I love what Amazon has done with Alexa, right? And they're real thought leaders around, hey, we're actually gonna build a voice ecosystem that is voice first. And I don't believe that Apple sees it as voice first. They see it as voice supporting, maybe. Mm. And I just think that's a philosophical difference. I would love to see Apple build um, and open up a kind of a Siri OS, so to speak, and allow people to build, uh, you know, voice first Siri applications. I think it'd be super good for the industry. One of the things you mentioned it, I love about this industry. It's a rising tide for all. So I celebrate things that Amazon does and that Google does and things, even though we're somewhat competitors and I know a lot of my colleagues over there, and we all like each other. The community's great. It's so fun to be in a community where there's such a bright future in front of us and so much uh, green field to be built that, yeah, we compete, but we more would lo love to cheer each other on, I'd say, so to speak. I really do believe that we're going to end up being a, uh, what's it called, uh, application agnostic or... Uh, company agnostic because there's so many different functions and everybody has a little different piece of 
voice technology in their home or in their car or on their wrist. Um, and it's from all different brands. And I feel like it's going to get to the point where, and it's probably really close, where people are pretty much dependent on this voice assistance, um, voice technology. And if they can't talk to the same device in multiple different locations, like if they're on their on the go or they're in their house, it's going to get frustrating to them. So I only see a benefit, even though, yes, there is competition. Ultimately, I believe that playing well together, playing nice will benefit. <laughs> totally agree. And it's, it's a nice place to be, right? Not all the technology industry, and I've been in tech for a long time, is like that. So it's a nice place to be. And I do think it's because there's so much ahead of us that mm -hmm. kind of drives that. It's a, it's a great industry to, and a very exciting industry to be in. Speaking of competition, what would you say um, Bixby's, what is unique about Bixby and its contextual awareness capabilities? Or is this just the new standard for conversational AI? What makes Bixby different than Siri and Alexa and Cortana and all of that? All right. Well, let me, I think you asked two questions. One, you asked about contextual awareness and then kind of a, what makes Bixby different. Let me touch on contextual awareness because I think this is so important for the industry. And I'm going to caveat this up a little bit by saying that I'm going to say, talk about some things that I think Bixby is really good at, but I also think the rest of the industry is, is catching up and, you know, it's a horse race and all the horses like are in the lead at different times. So uh, but, you know, if you think about contextual awareness, and let me just give you an example. So if I was building kind of a recipe finder and I said, find French dinner recipes. And then I said, show me some French dinner recipes. And I said, with beef. Okay, now I want to find French dinner beef recipes. And then I said, how about Italian instead of French? Now I want Italian beef dinner recipes. And then maybe I said, what about chicken recipes? What I'm doing there is I'm kind of refining a search, but I'm asking it to be contextually aware, right? To remember what was previously said, and in some cases, refine and narrow the search, in some cases, kind of replace those search parameters, so to speak. Um, the beauty of Bixby is you can do that. So if I wanted to model and say, hey, I want my Bixby application to understand what about chicken recipes? and understand that if I've already chosen, you know, another protein, so to speak, to replace it with chicken in that search, you only need to model that natural language query. There's no code you need to write to make that happen. I think that's pretty powerful. And from what I know, that's pretty unique. I think our contextual awareness capabilities in the industry are pretty simplistic right now. Um, we can have you know, quick back and forth. But if you think about humans, right, you could ask me something we talked about 10 minutes ago, and I would understand and contextually switch and be able to talk about that and then switch back to what we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. No voice system has good uh, support for that. And really, if we're going to get it to a point where we can talk to our technology in the most natural way, we're going to have to do a lot of work around the AI, around contextual awareness, and understanding how humans communicate and we communicate in chunks and move backwards and forwards. And, you know, it's not all kind of a linear kind of computer-like process. It's, it's, it's back and forth all over the place, right? If you grafted a conversation, it'd be kind of nutty, right? Right. But it all works for us. Um, so that's a bit about contextual awareness. Um, you also, you talked about how Bixby is different from our, from our competition. Um, really, I think 
two primary ways. One, we're inherently multimodal. And two, we're focused on devices that are not smart speakers. When I say inherently multimodal, so all devices that Bixby is currently on have screens. So what this means is that when you're building a Bixby capsule, a capsule is what we call a voice app, you know, Alexa calls them skills, Google calls them actions. Maybe the industry will standardize that one of these days. You're building a multimodal experience. As a matter of fact, you need to. So there's graphics and not just in the output. Um, I think there's a lot of voice assistants who have kind of rich support for graphics and multimodality and kind of the output, but also on the input with Bixby. So if you're asking for input at Bixby, on the UI, you can have a form, you can have a slider, you can have buttons, so you can interact with it via the screen or your voice, really depending on contextually, contextually what works best for you in that situation. I mean, I love voice, but sometimes tapping a button on a screen is better than speaking to things, and so it gives you that capability. Uh, and then the other thing is, Bixby, we don't have a smart speaker. We're on phones, smartwatches, appliances, TVs and building more. You know, I look, I love smart speakers. I have smart speakers in my house all over the place. I think they're great. I think we've done wonders with them in the industry. But if we're going to grow as an industry, we're going to have to kind of move beyond the smart speaker. And what I mean by that is there's a whole group of people who would never go out and buy a smart speaker. But they certainly might go out and buy a Samsung TV. And then they bring it home and they're like, oh, this is cool. I can talk to my technology. And now you have a new voice consumer, right? Who's now talking to a device that wasn't, a, uh, they didn't buy it because that voice is kind of just a feature of it, but now they discover it and now they get comfortable with talking to their technology. And I think that's gonna unlock a bunch in the industry and I'm super excited about that. That's a very good point because um, I always thought that the smart speakers grew out of just a creature comfort. There wasn't really a reason for them. And like even for me, when I got my smart speaker, I was like, okay, now what? You know, <laughs> like I was like, I know that this is something I should have in my home. I should understand how this works. Um, but I didn't fully understand it when I when I bought it and I just kind of put it in the living room and, you know, people started or my family was accepting it. My kids accepted it really fast um, and just trying to figure out how to utilize it. And I'm still learning it. But you bring up a very good point that everybody's used to a TV. Everybody's used to like this technology that's already there. Why not put it into the technology that they're already aware of, cognitive of, that they've already spent their money on or would spend more money on? Um, it makes, it's a, it's a great point. Very good point. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. It's fun. You're just talking about your kids. You know, um, I have two teen daughters, uh, and you mentioned beforehand that you have, your, your kids are younger. Um, my kids, I call them the touch generation. I think maybe your kids are the voice generation, right? You Probably. know, I mean, they're going to grow up expecting to be able to talk to their technology. And so they're really going to push this industry forward and hard in all the good, good ways that they can. I, I, I think kids push tech in, in good ways because they think about it or have expectations that us as adults don't. And that's so good for the industry. Yeah, I really, I was speaking to uh, Roger Gurman from Pandora a while back and we were talking about our kids and how we feel like there should be like some way to study a, a small child's usage on this because they will be you know, the future users, the future developers, the future, 
you know, creatives of this? Like, how do they utilize it? Because they're looking at it and thinking of it in a completely different way than we are. Um, because we're starting from, you know, this spot and they're starting from a completely different spot where they never even saw the spot that we're starting on. <laughs> no, well, they don't have all that cognitive bias. Right. Yes. Right. I mean, you see the voice and I see this in the voice industry. I see an awful lot of things where you can kind of tell that they took the mobile app and then made the voice version of it. And to be honest, sometimes that works, but sometimes it's like, mm, is it better than the mobile app? I'm not convinced it is, right? But the beauty, that's because there's a cognitive bias, right? We look to the past to look forward to the future, right? As adults, right? And it's good. It's how we survive as a, as a species is understand the past. But if you're going to truly be creative and unlock the future, in some ways, you got to ignore the past, right? And just think fresh and say, oh, I can talk to my technology. What do I want it to do when I talk to it, right? Uh, and I, I think kids are a great example there. So, yeah. Yeah, if we can figure out a way, you know, maybe, maybe children should be lead designers. <laughs> <laughs> it should be like, uh, you remember that movie Big? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's a fabulous example. Going back to contextual awareness, and I don't know if this would be part of the definition of it, but I was just thinking when you were talking, um, would contextual awareness be at some point the AI can pick up on our surroundings? So um, maybe like... And, and put that into the awareness of what the conversation may be. So for example, like we're out and about and it gets really windy and gusty and maybe the temperature drops and um, and then maybe there's a conversation that's sort of talking about colder weather and, and then the AI can like, I'm not entirely sure where I'm going with this, but like, can it sense our, what we're going through at that moment and add that to the conversation? Uh, I mean, spot on. Yeah, absolutely. It should, right? I mean, we know, you know, is if it's raining out versus it's sunny out, right? You know, that's that's a different thing. If I'm in in my rush to rush to work, I'm laughing because with COVID, my rush to work is running over to my home office. But <laughs> I'm rushing off post COVID to uh, to get 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 to work. Right? I'm in a hurry. I want things short, fast, efficient, everything. Now I had a long commute. On my commute, sitting in my car. I might want something with a little more humor and a little more, you know, drawn out and kind of fun, right? Contextually aware, right? Of, of where you are, what you're doing, um, what's happening. Um, I'll, I'll say privacy issues aside, if you think about how humans communicate, right? We communicate, yes, via voice, but there's also so many nonverbal cues, you know, mm -hmm. hand, as we're talking, my hands are gesturing. Mm -hmm. I can't help it. And there's nonverbal cues. I'm smiling or I'm not smiling there. You know, if you kind of brought those cues into the conversation, you just get a much richer understanding of what's going on in the, the context and how to respond or really what that person is asking. It's not just voice. It's the context of what's happening with you, the world around you and the nonverbal communication that you are passing on. There's a lot of opportunity there. Roger brought up a great point on designing with the world in mind. That means it's not just smart speakers. As he so smartly mentioned, there are a lot of people out there that would never buy a smart speaker, or as I like to think, they need a better motivation. By speaking to them in the language that they understand, TVs and microwaves, 
people can get used to voice technology in a framework that they get. And that's the approach, it seems, that Samsung is taking. Thanks for that perspective, Roger. Be sure to check back next week as we conclude our conversation digging into contextual awareness, voice assistance, and the ubiquitous nature of voice itself. For inquiries on sonic branding development or consultations, you can find me at Dreamer Productions. That's D-R-E-A-M-R Productions.com, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can also email me at Gina, J-E-A-N-N-A, at DreamerProductions.com. I'm very excited to announce that I will be launching a course on sounds, power, and influence in marketing in early 2021, where we'll be discussing what sound is and where it came from, the origins of advertising, advertising today and predictions for the future, sound's role in decision-making and buying power, and how our brains process sounds to create choice and reaction. To sign up for early details, go to soundandmarketing.com or follow me on all the socials. All links will be provided in the show notes. For more of the Sound and Marketing Podcast, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and share. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher. This episode was produced by Dreamer Productions and hosted, written, and edited by me, Gina Isham. Let's make this world of sound more intriguing, more unique, and more and more on brand.